Hey guys, welcome to the Hunting Camp Down Under podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Cuyuga Broadheads. As temps warm up around Australia and hunting tends to slow down for most of us, it's a great time to test new gear, fine tune our setups for our next hunt, whether it be six weeks' time or six months for the fallow and red deer rut in 2019. Now would be a great time to take advantage of the 10% discount at CuyugaBroadheads.com. Choose your polar cuts in either 125, 150, or 175 grains and simply use the HCDU10 code on checkout and change the outcome of your next hunt. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, before, mate. Oh, mate, well, buddy, we're getting, no warm. we're getting warmed up anyway. <laughs> Do you ever get sick of talking to hunters? Like, I, I know I don't because nah. it doesn't, we're all, it, the, the whole blending of hunters nowadays and that's what, that's what sort of got me onto the social media thing is the fact that when I was serious, when I first started deer stalking and all the rest of it, didn't say boo to anybody about hunting because you didn't want anyone to know where you were going or what you were doing. Yeah. But nowadays, it's um, it, the blokes are sort of, we're becoming a little bit more like Kiwi hunters, who I know a hell of a lot of, and, and over there, as, such, as you know, it's such as, just an accepted thing amongst hunters. That, well, I think, I think uh, like, to be honest with you, I wouldn't be doing this if it was like that, but what I'm thinking, it's, it's probably going the other way, mate. It's probably... I think it's becoming okay to talk about it, and I think it's helping the the sport and the lifestyle progress. If that makes sense. Oh shit, yeah. No, look, you've only got to look at. There's a couple of guys on, and I'm pretty quiet on social media. I don't, you don't, I don't put myself out there that much. Well, I can, probably more than a lot of 53 year olds, but I see some of those blokes that are that are actually doing the, the cause so much good. Yeah. Um, you know, just just trying to keep the antis off their backs. There's the other end of the scale too, where some of these young blokes that put on, they wonder why they get picked on by the bloody greenies, Craig, and they've got a goat with an arrow still hanging out of it and this sort of shit. Yeah, I mean, and, um, I, I, think you know, I, I think most of it's just sort of jumping the gun a bit. I don't think it's there's any intent there. I think it's just you know not sort of thinking about it. You know what I mean? But you know we, you know, unfortunately, yeah, it's mostly the young blokes don't think. So. Yeah, I think you know a lot of the time I think they probably get crushed on pretty quickly. Where you know probably a just a swift little chat, you know, probably would do it a lot better, but that's the trouble with social media as well, that it's out there so quickly you don't, um, you know, there's no time to rein it back in, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it's a bit of a problem, but, yeah, they, they sort themselves out, but it's 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 so good to see so many young guys that are as keen as what they are, that other young joker from South Australia, young... Um, oh, oh, Nick. No, bloody... Nick no, no, no. Um, Who else you got? No, the young bloke from up. Port Augusta there. Um, oh, Casey? McCulloch. Yeah, Casey. Casey. Yep. Uh, I've been looking at this. Mate, I, I wish I could wind the clock back 30 or 40 years and become a, a, you know, a hunter like that boy. We didn't have the opportunity to, to hunt like they do now, but, you know, Jesus, what that boy does is bloody incredible. Oh, mate, he's, a, he's, he's someone any, anybody could follow and watch and, and, and take advice from, if you ask me. You know, uh, the feedback that I got from his podcast was was just incredible and and for such someone at his age that to have you know achieved so much and experienced so much it's you know it's a full credit to him yeah no for sure i mean and it's i'm one of those silly old bastards that believes that you never stop learning you know yeah. you can be doing a, a hobby like hunting or a sport like hunting all your life i still reckon if you if you think you know it all you've been doing it too long so. <laughs> yeah give up i reckon it's time to finish but um Exactly right. I mean, the, your eyes to eye learn. Even all these young blokes that 
the things I've learned on since I've been doing the social media thing on 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 hunting, uh, and I've done a fair bit. You know, I've travelled and been overseas and done a whole bit. But some of these young blokes, it's it's not a, it's more than a lifestyle. It's their whole bloody life. So yeah. Well, mate, tell us a bit about yourself. You know, before we um, you know jump in telling stories, but you know, just sort of tell us how. You know how you grew up and and your introduction to hunting and you know was it something you always did or um, you know yep. just sort of give us a bit of intro to yep. to yourself, Craig. No worries, mate. No, well, we our family were all born and bred on Kangaroo Island. We've um, the old man's a professional professional line fisherman over there, and and uh, I was the youngest brother of from the youngest of seven kids, but the youngest of four brothers, and um, yeah, so hunting and hunting and fishing. It sort of came second nature when you were carting around every every opportunity you were out fishing or chasing chasing pigs or the the cliffs on the island used to be riddled in goats and it was uh, it was fantastic a really good environment for a young bloke to grow up in for sure. So did you when you started you know was it was it straight into rifle hunting or you know was it bows or was it dogs like what what was the sort of the hunting style that you you introduced to straight away? No. It, yeah, no, it was all it was all rifle shooting back then. I sort of got into bow hunting when I was about nineteen or twenty, I suppose, sort of self taught. And I had a brother. I was very lucky. I had a brother that was mad keen on bow hunting, and he got me into it. I think my first bow was an old Slazenger, forty pound Slazenger recurve, and we were out chasing goats and that around the north north coast of the island. But um, yeah, I slowly progressed up and got myself a. A, a bear, sixty-five pound bear grizzly, and didn't look back from there. We used to, we were out sometimes two or three days a week, two or three mornings a week before work, and that sort of thing, chasing goats and pigs, and uh, yeah, it was a, a bloody good, a bloody good life then. For those that don't know geography real well, um, including myself, but sort of just explain the idea behind Kangaroo Island. You know where it's sort of located. Um, you know a bit of the history of you know how game sort of got on there. Um, just sort of laid a bit of a picture. So people can sort of get a bit of an idea. Right, yeah. Well, uh, the the um, pigs were introduced by Nicholas Bowden when he um, when he pulled in there. One of the one of the settlers, one of the sailors, and and uh, I think the goats were released by early settlers as a food source, the same as the pigs. So um, yeah, other than that, I don't think there was there was only roos and wallabies and that sort of thing there as a native animal, and um, they were all released way back. So uh, and luckily for the hunters, they were. Where is Kangaroo Island, you know, situated on the on the South Australian coast? There, like, uh, just give us a bit of a locality on that. Right, mate. No, it's only um, it's just in the southwest corner of the, off, just off the Fleurie Peninsula in southern South Australia. Um, yeah, it's a, the islands are a bit over hundred miles long and uh, what is it, forty about forty miles wide at its wide, thirty something miles wide at its widest point. So it's not a big place, but um, the western end of the island riddled in scrub and, and uh, yeah, there was always plenty of opportunities to get out hunting for sure. Going back to, you know, the early days, uh, obviously starting the rifle hunting, you know, was your old, was your family just in general, um, your old boy and that, were they your sort of your main main people that sort of, you know, got you started, taught you taught you the ways? No, not really. The old man, was, as I said, he was a professional fisherman, but Dad... Um, it was more my eldest brother. He was uh, always a keen hunter from a young bloke, and, and when he came back from, he was um, he, he did a stint as a deer culler in New Zealand. And when he came back, um, I was I was only a little fella, um, and like I said, I got two other brothers of all mad keen on hunting. And um, yeah, we were all when he came back as a, as a culler from over in New Zealand. It sort of 
it stemmed from there. We were, it was, like I said, all rifle hunting. And, um, yeah, no, we were, I was always carting along behind them on a weekend out chasing pigs or something. It was great. <laughs> it sounds like so many people's stories to it, but <laughs> I'm just travelling along. Yeah, no, it was always, it was always very colourful, mate. It was always, there was never any flash camps. It was always, you know, four blokes huddled under a bloody big old tarp with a, as a lean-to against a scrub and um, there was nothing to flash about it. I remember going out there and I'd charging out hunting on real cold mornings in the back of a mini moat with a, with a dog and three brothers. It was, yeah, it was pretty colourful from what I can remember. <laughs> what, uh, obviously, you know, pigs and goats were your sort of, you know, your foundation species, so to speak. Um, I checked out some of the size of the hogs that you, you know, that you, you had on your Instagram page. Man, that thing's are freaking huge. Is that, look, was that across the board for the, you know, for the size of the game down there or were they just sort of, you know, the the rare the rare one of the species, so to speak? Uh, the, the nutrition on the island, like the rainfall there is fairly high and, and it's not um, being a fairly lush sort of spot in winter. The, the pigs had pretty good pickings over there. It was, um, it was regular to see really big hogs. They were... There was a bit of limestone out there, so you regularly got broken tusks and that sort of thing on big boars, but the body size on some of the pigs there, I remember we got a, a big old sow there. We shot a big old sow there one, one morning um, in the middle of winter that was, I think we weighed it and it was, you know, I think it was gutted and headed, and we brought it back in for a bloke. He wanted to eat it, and um, it was 330 pounds oh, dressed, shit. so it was a fairly big hog. I weighed it on, the, yeah, it was a big hog. It was a big old... I think that's on the Instagram page. Somewhere it was a big old black and white hog, and it was, I can't remember how big or how long it was physically, but it was a, a huge hog. But there was a 300 pound pig then, because they got a lot of age then, Craig, too. Yeah, there wasn't yeah. a hell of a lot of blokes out, you know, and, and the environment sort of, because it was so wet, um, and winters over there back then, you were sludging around in a foot of water, and, and, and we used to do it all on foot. And um, yeah, it was. It was a regular occasion to get a regular occurrence to get, you know, 250, 300-pound pigs. What's the sort of, you know, you, you said, like, the, the quality of the country is, is up there, obviously rainfall and that, but, you know, is there any cropping on Kangaroo Island or, you know, what's sort of the lay of the land? Is it rich country or...? Yeah, fairly rich country. It's it's mostly sheep country, sheep and, and cattle country. Okay. Um, wasn't a lot of... A lot of I think the cropping... It was cropping there for feed and that sort of thing, but because everything was, the island was um, the only way to get there, other than flying was the ferry, the, the cost of transporting grain and that sort of thing was um, yeah, fairly steep. That that probably had a lot to do with the fact that there wasn't a hell of a lot of, hell of, a lot of cropping goes on there. Yeah, yeah. So when, going back, you know, what was the sort of the leap? Obviously, um, you know, Kangaroo Island obviously was, you know, had you pretty well sorted you know, and kept you busy, but what was the first leap and how old were you, um, you know, when you sort of jumped over the mainland and started chasing different species? Yeah, well, I was, uh, I think it was about, I worked in a um, big seafood, uh, commercial seafood factory on the island for years and years. And I think I moved to the mainland when I was about 28 years old and, and discovered deer hunting, mate, and then it sort of, <laughs> it went downhill from there. It's, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> It, it's kept me fairly busy. It's probably far too busy, but um, yeah, I've never looked back. I mean, deer hunting here in South Australia has been great. 
when you go back, you know, obviously it would have been pretty tough. Um, you mentioned social media earlier in the convo about, you know, apart from the stories and following some of the some of the guys out there doing it, you know, obviously information in shooting and building and all that kind of stuff is so easy to get hold of now. How did you find jumping, you know, obviously getting into, um, you know, deer and that kind of thing, whether it was rifle or bow hunting, but, you know, how did you find that growth pattern as you come across to the mainland and, and as it changed up the species? It was fairly easy. Like, um, I knew a lot of blokes living in the country here in South Australia. I sort of got got to know quite a few blokes, and I was lucky enough to get some really good country. Um, it's it's probably a hell of a lot harder now because there has been a lot of aerial shooting of deer in South Australia in the last four or five years, and there's places where there was, you know, decent numbers of animals, but it's been knocked around. But at the time when I first got into it, it was... Um, sort of just fell into it. I, I made contact with a few farmers and um, all the hunting's sort of only three or four hours from where I live, which makes it makes it a bit easier too. Most of your, most of your deer hunting early in the days, was that rifle hunting? Yeah, most of it was rifle hunting. I've actually got a mad keen bow hunting son who has got me into bow hunting just recently. I've, I've, um, I've only got into the back into the... the I suppose you'd call it modern bow hunting in the last sort of 18 months and I haven't even taken game of the bow yet. I've chased a fair bit, but um, I'm a fairly patient sort of bloke. <laughs> Some days. Um, going back, <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, rifle shooting, what was one of the main lessons, you know, because we, we have a lot of, as much as I talk a lot of bow hunting, you know, I, I very much want to, you know, encourage obviously rifle hunters and, and all hunters in general to, to listen to the info, but... What was the biggest leaps that you found going back early days, just in in the hunting side of things, not so much the shooting things, but what were some of the things that you learned, especially chasing deer, because obviously that sort of steps up to another level. But you know, reading country, you know, reading the game, like what were some of the things that sort of come to mind now that you learnt back then? Well, it was it was it was all about as you just mentioned, Craig. It was about chasing sign. And I still, I think I'll get just as much of a kick out of, and that could have something to do with just making it to 53 years of age. That I enjoy, I seem to enjoy looking for sign and that sort of thing um, just as much as I do the hunting side of it. Um, You know, animals, getting into deer hunting 30 years ago was a lot easier just purely because there was more animals, I think. And it was it was probably a whole lot easier to um, to gain access to country then too. I know how hard it is now because I've got my son who's you know up and coming and he, he's just really passionate about bow hunting and he's found it very hard. He's he's lucky. He's gone into a couple of places to hunt deer and and um, you know he's he's always out there doing it. But the probably the, the difficulty in obtaining good country with good numbers of deer on it's probably. Probably the biggest change I've seen in hunting. Yeah, it's always hard, and I, I always use the, the quote: you know, you, you're only as, especially in Australia, you're only as good a hunter as what you block offers, um, which makes it difficult because yeah. I know a lot of guys out there that, self included, you know, I've, I've had the country where you've done real well, and for various reasons you don't have access any further. And I'll tell you what, mate, it, it's yeah, as I said, you, it's hard to shoot something decent or, or shoot anything at all if if there's just nothing on the country. So. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that are top hunters, but you know, unfortunately, just don't get the the access to to show it off. 
Yeah, it's a real shame when you hear blokes that have hunted on blocks for so many years, and and I know blokes too that have, um, with the with the pressure a lot of a lot of farmers get with with blokes asking for access and that sort of thing, and they get mm. they get denied access to a property because there's you know blokes farmers just get so sick of blokes asking for to come on and and hunt game, and um, you know it's a shame when you hear blokes give it up because because they've they've been you know the farmers just uh, they aren't, uh, I don't know, I don't know how you'd call it, just they're, they're, uh, they get a bit sick of people asking, I suppose. Well, Ben, like that, you know, honestly, this year, you know, I, I didn't really do much at all. I, I didn't even chase balls through the winter, apart from just being busy. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of big trips planned that we went away and did. But, you know, with them battling through drought and all that kind of stuff, the last thing I felt like up was ringing up and saying, oh, mate, can I come for a hunt? You know, it just, it just didn't sit right with me. I know they would have liked the company and, and wanted to chat. You know, but it just didn't feel right to ring them up and and be on a social side of things. You know. Yeah, yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. There's um, that's why we're fairly lucky down here. Like we we haven't got it wet like like a lot of normal years in the past by any means. But the the um, yeah, it's, it's still very dry. And I know what you mean. It's um, you feel a bit funny about you know ringing them up when they've they've got enough on their plate without a bloke running around camping and hunting on the block. Yeah, big time. I want to sort of break it down. Um, you know, I know you do have a lot of lot of years under your belt, and and you know you probably you probably keep that quiet a bit. But you, you know you've hunted a lot and you've experienced a lot. I want to sort of break it down to, to guys that are just getting into it. Obviously, you know we're towards the end of our season or at the end of our season, and deer, especially the fallow and, and the reds, will be the next sort of you know hunts that most people are going to going to sort of concentrate on. What's a good starting point? You know, especially for yourself down in South Australia, a little bit different country. Uh, where's the starting point hitting a new block? You've just got access. We'll, we'll play out a bit of a bit of a role play here, but you know, you've just got access to a new block. You haven't walked over it. What, what's the sort of starting point that that you take um, accessing a new place and you're going for your first look, so to speak? Yeah, a lot of the young blokes like them, and like I said, I've just been through with my young fella, and and um, he, sorry, Craig. He's um he's door knocked and you know he's uh, he's done it the hard way and looking for country to hunt on and I've always told him that you know you don't roll up um, in all your camo gear with your with your with your bow or your rifle hanging out the back and 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 that sort of thing. You, he, he's got under a lot of country through um, he lived in the country as well just through through people he knew, um, starting with eating just rabbits and, and foxes and stuff like that around town and finding little 50-acre blocks just out of town. And and um, so I sort of watch him going through the the, the process of looking for country. And, and um, yeah, it, it, you get there. Um, you can, they can only say no if someone, you know, if you ask a farmer, if, you, if you're appreciative and, and they say no, you walk away. And, um, yeah, that, that's how he's sort of going about it. So go move, move into the next step. You know, you've 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 finally got the block. Um, you know, it's a, it's a deer block, or it's known to have deer on it. Um, what what is your starting point? Like, what do you do from there? You you know, you're gonna you're gonna hit it for the rut. So the rut's sort of a, a month away or so to speak. Um, you know, what's your, what's your first sort of movements on the block? What are you looking for? What are you what are you gonna do? Tell me what you're gonna do. Right, yeah, I sort of find that and and. That's after hunting them for years too. That that um, not not just checking the place out and not putting your scent down along every spot where a deer comes out of the scrub has always been 
always been the way I've gone about it. Um, if you go to a, and most blokes have done a fair bit of deer hunting, if you go to a bluff and you're there for four or five days and the first, and every day you walk around a scrub edge or a, a patch of timber or wherever where the deer are coming out from, and um, they wonder why after the first couple of days they're not seeing anything. They might see a few on the first day and they see a few less on the second day and by the last day they leave they're not seeing a deer. Um, I think the most important thing for young for young hunters to to get who are just getting started up in it is to not not hunt right in the area where the deer are. Sit back and watch more than what you actually walk around. That's and I still do that the same way now. We'll often just sit back in blinds and and watch a scrub edge or watch a jump in the fence and and I think that's probably probably the best way for for people to get started in it anyway. Getting a little bit technical here, but what are you looking for? without the obvious signs of rut activity, activity. But what are you looking for to know that the deer are actually there? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, like you said, just just uh, jumps in the fence and that sort of thing. It, it's If you've got a, a time when you're not actually hunting there, just driving along fences and that sort of thing, if you've got vehicle access or walking a fence just to see where deer are jumping fences and coming out of feed, good tuck is such a, such a big attraction now that, you know, if you've got... We'll have places where there might be a, a loosened crop, you know, on the next door neighbour's place, and it's it's um, yeah, it, it's all got to do with feed a lot too, I think, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's well, you know, I guess in dry country, like you know, a lot of South Australian country is, you know, when when there's that bit of feed, and it's like sort of Western New South Wales and the likes, you know, feed's always going to dominate, and, and water, you know, you you hear all the different guests that jump on that, you know, various different species. Uh, no matter what they are, they, they've all got the same habits and the same things in common. They can't live without food and water. Yeah, exactly right. No, they're, they're um, you get a really good loosen crop, it'll drag deer for, for miles. I remember over in New Zealand and the South Island, um, in that real steep country up in the, in the west coast there, um, there was a, a place we were hunting and they had, I think it was broad beans on a, a block opposite us and, and watching the the deer travel from our country, which was fairly sparse where we were hunting, across to this um, this broad bean, I suppose you call it a paddock, down in a big gully. It was just incredible the, the distances animals would go for good time. How far do you reckon they'll travel? I'm not sure, mate. I mean, I, I, I know of, I was only talking to a bloke a couple of days ago that was, and this wasn't deer, this was goats, but um, that was in the, up in the mid-north here in South Australia and he, um, there was a, a goat breeding place that must have lost some animals, a couple of young young nannies, I think it was, or something. And um, he was on a doing a goat cull for someone, I think, or some some type of hunting on a block, and it was 20 kilometres away from this farm. And he found um, they they shot these couple of goats, which they were told to shoot these goats for a cull by the farmer, and and they'd travelled 20 kilometres, so they they do go a fair way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I. I don't know whether I've told this story on the, on the podcast, but I, I was told by a mutual friend, you know, just, just following red deer and, and, you know, where they get to in the winter compared to where they rut, you know, um, you know, I think of other you know, migration species over in the States and that that travel all these distances, but, we, you know, we don't sort of think of it as much here in Australia because we don't have the snowfall and all that kind of stuff up high. But, you know, some of the distance that the red deer will travel is just amazing, you know, they sort of... A couple of towns away, so to speak, before they got back into the range where they were rutting. You know, just just you know, caught on 
caught on trail camera a couple of times and, you know, spotted by different hunters that eventually worked the L out. And, you know, it was the same, same stack. It was absolutely incredible. You know, I'm talking 20 and 30 as well. Like Kay's just, just amazing. Yeah, it's sort of it's one of the one of those um, one of those things that's always fascinated me too. That you can see you can have deer on your block all all through the you know the the early parts of, of uh, stag growing his antlers. But on the fallow down here, you can have you can watch all these beautiful young stags you know growing out their antlers, and then they'll disappear for two or three months. Well, you wonder whether it coincides with a crop coming up or whether it coincides with human pressure or, you know, water availability of water or whatever it is. But, yeah, it's always... Uh, and I think that's that's uh, another interesting part of them, too, trying to fathom things out. They, the the um, modern technology helps a fair bit, too. I think, Craig, with the, the, all the trail cameras and stuff around nowadays, that certainly makes life a lot easier, too, mate. Yeah, I think it definitely does. I mean, what surprises me, you know, with the trail camera sort of set up, is the amount of things that catch that I think nearly even confusion more so, you know, because you 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 see things and you find things that you're like, well, if he's doing that, all my all my theories have just gone out the window. You know what I mean? Like I think it nearly puts another element both ways. Um, I mean, I don't know how you sort of felt found that, but you know, I watch a lot of the guys, you know, because obviously they're big in the states, chase, you know, when they're watching wallows and early season all that and. I just think, oh, I, I sometimes I think it's too much information to try and work it out from. Yeah, you're probably right, mate. It might just complicate things even more. It was, <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, you, you can wander around all night. Probably your two eyes are the best indication of what's about and and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we, we've got a couple of blocks down here that you don't see a deer for for all of the grown out period, exactly the opposite of what I was talking about before. You you um you don't see a deer for all the grown out period and then they turn up, you can have a property with a few does on it and you've got stags coming out of nowhere. It's sort of uh, yeah, that's all part of it, I think, mate. I was just about to say, you know, in that scenario there, do those does stay on that block all year round? No, that's that's and I don't think that's got all to do with feed too. You mentioned the the whole migration theory thing, I think. There's a lot of places where you'll talk to blokes that might be hunting on a block, you know, it might be five or ten k's away, and they'll say they saw a, a certain mob of deer, and you think you wonder whether that was the mob that was, you know, that you'd see regularly through the winter, or um, you know, you'd find their cast antlers, and then you wouldn't see them all summer, you wouldn't see them through the growing out period, and then they'd roll up again in the rut. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely interesting. It's definitely got me stuffed, you know, where they go. I mean, some of these red deer were back in the hills here near home, you know, talking to the to, to the mates that sort of live in around them, you know, they'll, they'll, see, they'll see certain stags, you know, throughout the rut, you know, and then they sort of all of a sudden disappear and, you know, they get, the area gets hit real hard. Occasionally, they'll see a couple of the younger stags come out the crop when things get dry and that, but it's got most stuff where these big boys go and they turn back up the next rut. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a challenge, isn't it? We're trying to work out what they uh, what what they do and what they get up to, but it's um, not the human pressure side of things too. It, we've got areas in South Australia where the the area I'm sure it is just decimated animals, and yeah. and we all know that and, and, um, controlling numbers is a, it's an important part of it. If they get if they get in too big in numbers, but then when they're completely knocked around, that makes it. Uh, Makes it a bit hard to work out what animals are doing too. Mate, tell us a little bit about you. You know, your 
your experience over the years of, you know, what have you hunted, the species, what, uh, and maybe a hunt that really has really stuck in your mind. It could be a big one. It could just be a little hunt, but, you know, give us an idea of, you know, what you have actually experienced. Yeah, like, I mean, I used to thoroughly enjoy chasing pigs and goats and that sort of thing, but when I first moved to the mainland, um, I always had a hankering to hunt chamois in New Zealand, and um, I still remember training for, I think it was a couple of years, walking around in the hometown in Kangaroo Island in Kingscote, walking around with a backpack full of phone books, um, <laughs> trying to walk up and down every steep hill I could find to try and, to try and um, how would you say it now, trying to... Get in half shape. Get used to the same conditions of hunting New Zealand, and even after oh, over a year, well over a year of training doing that sort of thing, I still wasn't ready for it when I bloody got up there anyway. So. <laughs> the only way to train for New Zealand is hunt New Zealand. Yeah, no, it was it, it was a, an experience that I'll never forget. They might only be a tiny little trophy I had. I've still got the, I've got a little nine-inch cami buck that I shot down on the South Island with a couple of couple of Kiwi fellas, and and it's still. You know, I've shot reds and I've shot some fairly good deer, you know, but but that little chamois that's mounted on a little pedestal mount in the corner of the lounge room still probably means more to me than than any other, but just because of the where he was hunted and, and how he was hunted, you know. There's, yeah. you, there's not many animals you can see at 7 o'clock in the morning sitting around a campfire having breakfast up on the side of the hill and not shoot him until 3.30 in the afternoon. So, <laughs> you know, it's... Um, and that's a hunt that sort of sticks in my mind and we had foul weather and... And and just the the Kiwi attitude towards hunting, you know, I was invited over there by a bloke um, down at Omaru in the South Island. Those blokes couldn't do enough for you, you know. They carted us out, they they picked us up and dropped us off, and you know, carted us on. And they didn't have to do that. It was, um, but that's sort of the, the Kiwi way of, of hunting. I think. Is it because I guess you know hunting's obviously a lot more accepted down there? Um, you know, we've seen the challenges just in present weeks that you know regarding the culling and that kind of stuff and you know those kind of things unfortunately are um are going to keep arising but the way that the, the new zealand guys sort of banded together and then then obviously you know australia and, and around the world sort of you know um you know show their support but is it just because it's the the lifestyle down there that you think is is why they're so open-armed and and, and just passionate about their hunting i think so mate and it's a it, it... It's the amount of blokes that are doing it there. It's it's not like you hear up until recently, like probably the last ten years, when the whole social media thing gets going and blokes talk about hunting a lot more here now. Whereas over in New Zealand, it was um, it's always been accepted, I think, and it's it's because it was a mateship thing, it was a, a camaraderie thing. And if you were a, but in New Zealand and the same as here, blokes growing up as a kid, my my older brothers were heroes to me because they were really keen hunters and you know that that's all they did and, and that's what I wanted to do and I think that's that's sort of how the whole Kiwi attitude is towards it too. Blokes were look looked up to when they were, you know, deer hunters and, and pig hunters and that sort of thing. It's just a di- just a different mindset, I think. Going back to your brothers, um, are they still into it? Like as much as what they were in the in the early days, you know, obviously, you know, you you, you do look up to them. Um, you know, are they still doing it or you know, they're, they're there in an age that they've sort of had to ease up or? No, 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 none of them have slowed down. In fact, that's probably the opposite. I've got a, an older brother that's a, sort of a EL town and a, and a guiding outfit on the Samba here in Victoria. And, Matt, I don't even try and keep up with him when I, when I go over there. To visit. 
But no, uh, me, me uh, sorry, man. No, you're. I was just going to say, have you been over and chased the samba yet? Uh, no, he's at the the. Um, he's over at Mansfield in Victoria, and gotcha. yeah, well, we're pretty well we're pretty well flattened banders here in South Australia compared to that stuff, mate. As you know, and, and uh, but yeah, he's a, he does that over there, and um, the brother that Rob Merton, he's a full time taxidermist down here at Gore in South Australia. He's still um, heavily. We get away, you know. We're away a lot of weekends through the winter and that sort of thing. We might have slowed down a little bit, but we still make sure we we make time to get away. Um, yeah. We're both self-employed, so you know we make time to get away. And it's more about and it's just as much about sitting around the campfire and talking about the old days and talking about taxidermy and all that sort of thing because that's that's another interest I've got. I can. I've done a bit of filming and stuff of Rob putting deer together and that sort of thing, and that that's another fascinating part of um, hunting that I, I still really enjoy. Here's a question for you: What makes good taxidermy over a bad one? Sorry, mate. What makes good? What makes a good taxidermist over a bad one? In your a opinion, a good taxidermist. Um, well, I've had a, a bit of work done by blokes around Australia, and I won't mention any names, but I think a, a taxidermist that doesn't get rushed. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I see it all the time, blokes. Oh, I want my deer head back. I want my deer head back. But it's it's a little bit like like anything. If a, if a and and you also only get back what you put in. If blokes if blokes take in a cape that's been knocked around and hasn't been soldered properly, or so a, tech, a good taxidermist can only be as good as the work that he, that's brought into him. There's yeah. a lot of things they can fix. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm I can't do it. I, I can do the basic things, or me, um, me uh, Euro mounts and all that sort of thing, boiling heads and doing all that sort of thing. But just to sit down, you really should sit down and watch a professional taxidermist do what he does, and you have a lot more. Oh, you do. You have a lot more um, respect for what they do. It's not just slapping a bit of skin onto a onto a foam form and it turns out looking like it's still alive. It's you can only work with what you've got. And I've seen some of the things that some of the things that get bought into taxidermists, right? They're um, yeah, they're, they're not real, not real flash, but uh, you know the, the stuff that's bought in, well looked after, and and um, there's so much out there now for for young hunters, especially to look at. There's YouTube and there's Instagram and there's Facebook and there's all these things. There's you know you've only got to and you can get you know, phone coverage in most places. So these blokes that have trouble caping out a deer, that you know there, there's been things cut the wrong way and that sort of thing. It's as simple as, you know, getting on, on that, that sort of social media platform and, and looking step by step on how to how to look after a game animal in the field. And let's face it, some of these hunting trips cost a lot of money and that trophy is pretty important. So, you know, doing a bit of groundwork before you go or just before you charge in and, and, and wreck a good cave, it's um, yeah, a good idea to look something up before you go. Yeah, I think... Or- you know, I've made the mistakes. I've been up by my taxidermist. I've had, I've been, I've been told what to do, what not to do, and and I found what's funny is that every taxidermist has his own way of how he likes the cape. So I think you know, especially for a couple of these big trips that people will do, you know, especially with New Zealand being so accessible now and and becoming quite popular, and obviously you know, potentially our deer ruts as well. You know, everyone wants to see a a nice big stag or a buck or whatever up on the wall, but make sure you, I think you ta- chat to the taxidermist that you think you're going to use because they, they've all got their little ways that they like to, 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 you know, to get it received, I suppose you could say. Um, 
on uh, that I've spoken to a couple and they're, they're both very different on how how they actually want to do to work with the cape. So it's always a you know something to to maybe prepare for, and, and I'm sure your brother's the same. Yeah, most of them. Uh, like I said, I've had a, you know done by several different taxidermists over the years, and and they probably do have their their set ways of liking things caped out and that sort of thing. But I think overall, um, just as long as people take their time, if you charge in on a and I've watched it, and I still get into trouble with my brother now if it's getting late <laughs> and you've shot something four o'clock in the afternoon in the nice blunt or I mean I've taken a couple of things for him that I've sort of caked out in a, in a headlamp and. Yeah, it might be family, mate, but I still cop it just like everyone else. You know, things that are, yep. you know, knocked around. There's certain things they can fix, and I, and I, I have a true interest in taxidermia. Well, I can't do it myself. I love watching it, and um, you know, there's a really good taxidermist can fix most things, but you can't fix something like a a cape that's been put in a plastic bag and left to sweat. Yeah. Um, you know, they should never go into plastic and that sort of thing. And like I said, if you if you spend thousands of dollars on an airfare to travel somewhere and you've got this cape and and you and just a simple thing like looking after it, just caping it down. And if you can't, a lot of young blokes, I think if they can't, um, if they can't, if they don't know how to do it, they're far better off just leaving everything on and bunging the whole lot in the freezer and get someone to do it. While I'll probably get in trouble with taxidermists for saying that because hmm. it'll give them more work. Um, That'll be right. It's, they're far better off. Well, they're far better off getting an animal that, and this is, I can only go by watching what my brother does and that sort of thing. Um, you can only go by, by um, you, you can't stitch up a dirty grey hole in a net that's, that you, you can hide certain things and that sort of thing. But if you want your mount to last a long while, I think, um, yeah, they're far better off just putting something in a freezer and, and or getting it straight to a taxidermist. Cut your hum trip short if it's a really good trophy and get that, it to yeah. a taxidermist. So we, yeah, so he can do the job, you know. So yeah, throw it on the back of you, you know, if you get your truck there, or you can get a, something there to carry it out, like especially if it's a it's a fallow or something, you know, gut it out, get just take the whole thing. If the taxidermist is close by, I mean, I've you know the first couple that I yeah. shot, you know, and uh, and had mounted, and I did notice split lips, and and I, to be honest with you, I've only really been shown properly just of late, um, you know, of of hands on, you know, right in front of you. On a, on a you know on a good bench and, and doing it properly rather than trying to do it in, in a in a field or in the camp but um, you know I always just just froze you know froze the ears fro- you know just froze it with without splitting lips or or doing the ears turn the ears so you know the taxidermist does the other and, you know it's done properly then and, and the mouse have turned out fantastic so um, I think yeah if you if you don't know how to do it don't do it at all and and obviously probably just looking after the cake immediately after it's it's been done um, that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah, I think getting the getting the cape off isn't isn't the habit. I think, like as you mentioned, uh, when you get up around the eyes and the, and you start getting into pre-orbitals in a fallow deer that are fairly deep and mm. and uh, turning ears and that sort of thing, get your cape off. And and I've had to do it myself. You know, you, like I said, you've shot something last thing or it's in really rough country, and and you're bet far better off just taking the cape off. And, and leaving the ear turning, if you can get it into a freezer or you like to get it straight to a taxidermist before it starts to starts to go, before bacteria starts to get into it, um, I mean, you're far better off doing that than, than racing in. And I've watched work around the nose, and I've taken quite a few deer, and, and I still have trouble when it gets up around the nose and the eyes. You've got to get all that all that uh, 
all that skin parted and separated or salt doesn't get into it and that's the the first enemy of a having you know, a really good deer cake but um it'll it'll certainly go off quick if it's not turned properly. Oh big time off yeah, I've got to be honest, I've, I've lost a red cake uh just recently. You know, I hadn't I hadn't turned it properly and yeah, didn't get the salt in there mate and yeah, my it all hair slipped around that around the nose, so unfortunately couldn't be saved, so absolutely spewing for that one, but learnt my lesson unfortunately, so but um, you know, it was okay for a few. Yeah, years there's ago. a lot of I like I like to actually. Yeah, I, I like to um, to put the same the same cape on the deer. I know you can a lot of taxidermists have a spare cape, or you can buy a cape. You know, I've I've seen capes on eBay and all that sort of thing. But you don't know what you're getting. Um, you're far better off with the with, even if it's got even if it's rattled up and it's got a few scars on the neck and it's got a you know rip down the face. Like I said, mo- a lot of things can be fixed up, and I've I've watched my brother fix things that you you think you couldn't hide. You know, it might be a, an antler tear in the neck or a you know a big hunk of hair out of the back of the neck. But you're far better off doing a good job on the cut you've got. Because, you know, regardless of how how uh, how rough it is, it's yeah. um, it's going to come up a lot better if you do it yourself. Yeah, it tells the story a little bit too, I suppose. You know, a few of those fight marks and those kind of things. I mean, even if the knife has slipped, you know what I mean. It uh, it does tell a story, and I suppose you've got to have a bit of a chuckle about it occasionally. Yeah, I mean it's fairly important. Like I've still got the, the first the first year I, I shot thirty five years ago. I've still got a mount of mate, and I, I can't say it's anything flash to look at, but I still keep it. I've still got hold of it, and it's got hunks out of it and all that sort of thing. And it was taxidermied in the old style, mate. That it looks like it's got a set of glass eyes in it and that sort of thing. But it's it's all a memory of the hunt. Oh, it's the most horrid looking thing you've ever seen in your life. But it's um, you know, it's still a memory and. And um, you know, I still hang on to it. That sort of when hunting's a big part of your life, like it has been for me. I, I, um, you know, I, I appreciate any animal, and it's not always. It doesn't have to be a, a big record head, or it's more to me about the how the hunt went and who you were with, or where you yeah. were, or you know that sort of thing. It, it's uh, it's not all about. It's it's great to shoot a big animal, whether it's with a bow or a rifle or what it is. But um, you know, it's uh, it's for me, it's more about the hunt more than anything. Was that an evolving thing? You know, step back to, you know, your 20-year-old self and, you know, if a lot of the guys that I've sort of spoken to, you know, have, have probably agreed to this, but has it been an evolving thing early in the days? It was just a matter of, you know, getting out and killing the biggest thing you could find or, you know, have you always been of, you know, it didn't really matter about the hunt. Um, you know, it was always about the company. Now, I was always sort of taught the right way. When you got, you know, three brothers that have always been, Really keen bushmen and 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 into their hunting, but in 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 my younger days, it was more about how many goats you got or how many pigs you shot, and it was more about quantity. And that probably sounds terrible, but it was more no. about you know how how more you know how often you went hunting and stuff. But it, as you get older, I think it's seen Craig. It seems to become more about you know quality rather than quantity. I still you know I don't have to shoot anything anymore. Um, and I haven't shot this bloke, so there's a lot more deer than what blokes like I have. But and I, I treat it more like it's it gets, um, it's a quality thing, you know. It's yeah. it's getting out there, and and um, it's like me uh, watching me son hunting now. I get I get more of a kick out of wandering along behind him with a video camera and filming him for a weekend than what I do shooting a big stag. You know, it's um, it's uh, I don't know whether it's a father thing or what it is, but it's uh, yeah, it's. Uh, Certainly, a really good part of hunting, and, and I enjoy that. 
probably more, I enjoy my hunting more now than what I did 20 years ago because of it, I think. I think it's interesting you say that because, I mean, I think, like Ben, you know, I'm only a, a father of young children, but, you know, it's every time you do see them do something, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's the the bit that you probably missed out on that, you know, maybe you didn't, you know, ex- get to experience it exactly like you did with your son, but then it's the father thing as well, you know. So I think it's, it's a mixture of both, I think, is probably what I think I enjoy part, you know, and even with mates going out and I think it's sort of, as much as you like to take something, it doesn't really matter who pulls a trigger. You know, I think if the hunt's successful in, whether that's taking a trophy or just having a good time with good guys or and, you know, a good crew, I think I think that's sort of the win at the end of the day. Oh, for, for sure, Greg. Yeah, no, it's, um, it can be something as simple as my young fella, he's done, like I said, he's done it all himself and he started when he was 12. He bought a little takedown recurve thing and, saved the money up himself and he had family friends with a little property just out of town and, and he, I still remember him ring, ringing me up at nine o'clock at night and he shot his first rabbit with a bow and a, a prouder man there wasn't on this planet, I can tell you right now. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I mean, look, I've, you know, talking about success, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, you know, I've I've gone as hard as I possibly can to, to try and find the success over the last couple of years on some of these bigger hunts, but... You know, it's been the experience and the crew that I've had, the people that I've met, you know, some of the, since becoming, coming back from Alaska, um, you know, a couple of months ago, you know, I've, I've got friends and that, you know, I call true life friends now that, you know, we're organising for hunts next year. I've got a couple of guys coming out here next year. I'll be back, hopefully back over Alaska, you know, coming, you know, sort of, you know, last, um, sorry, August, September next year. And, and then apart from that was the crew that I had, you know, I had, you know, Brad and Jerry, over there as well and, and given the circumstance that I was in without having them there um, you know we've experienced some good hunts you know over the recent years you know it, it made it a bearable I suppose in the, in the end of the day with the result that I got but you know without, without them there you know I think it would have been a whole lot harder to handle so it sort of goes both ways as well Oh yeah for sure um, and you mentioned on, on crews you hunt with and blokes you hunt with and blokes you meet in the field and on trips and that sort of thing it's um, that's been a big thing of mine too the, the camaraderie and stuff between hunters and it doesn't mean that, that the bloke you've, you've met on the hunting trips a, a hunter you know as, as full on as what you are but um, some of the mates I've met through hunting over the years and stuff are, uh, are true friends and, and while you're not you know you don't, don't hunt together every weekend and you don't see them every three months they you can you can talk to them five years apart, and um, you've still got that common bond thing. That's that's bloody brilliant. That's a part of it. I really enjoy also. Definitely, I mean, I just had it. I was just sort of smirking there when you're saying that. Uh, it was only last night, and I hope their wives aren't listening to this. But uh, I met a couple of boys in a group message, and we just put in for the New Zealand ballot, and uh, you know, ridiculous odds to try and even get a get a draw in the ballot over there for next year. And, and I just said in the message, I said, you know, you know, the boy, one of the boys said, oh, we probably won't draw, but, you know, it'd be bloody epic trick if we did. And I said, who gives a shit if we don't draw? Let's just say that we did anyway and we'll go over for the week. So it doesn't, <laughs> exactly right. it, yep. Do, yep. it doesn't matter about yep. the shooting. It's just, 
you know, I know the crew that was exactly. involved and mate, we wouldn't have to be meals. We'd just go and I don't know, go to the pub for a week or something over there, who knows? But go and chase tar. But yep. you know, it just goes to show, you know, it's just yeah, the some of the stories that I remember now clearly, you know, yeah, I've had some great success stories taking trophies, but you know, some of the weekends we've had that, you know, I don't even think we made the mountain for the next morning, you know what I mean? It's it's just hilarious. So um yeah, hence the name of the podcast, yeah. you know, hunting camp down under. It's all about the hunting camp, I reckon. Yeah, exactly right. No, I've, I've, I think it's a great thing, these the sort of... It, it, it joins a community, like, you've only got to admire blokes that... And the Kiwis are a real typical example. I watched that tar thing, and, you know, being lucky enough to, to have hunted tar, you realise that it's a it's a hell of a hunt, and the the work those blokes do, that, that do it all, the, the guys that do it all the time, it's got to be admired when they all band together like they did, and... and, and like what could have quite easily, you know, ruined an industry. Really, when you look at it, the amount of, the amount of all the dollars that were spent, and the, you've got to think of all the guides that are there now, the, the ones that are doing it commercially. That, and and right down to you know motels in in the in the towns where like stayed or pubs where they drank and ate and that sort of thing. It it could have been disastrous. And and just you know, it's a great thing that they all banded together and 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 you know stuck it up and really. Okay, I'm going to ask you this question, and I know that uh, I won't answer this honestly, but when you look at the commercials, fishing side of things, and you know, and obviously the troubles and the, the you know, the the setbacks that you guys get on a commercial side of things that you've probably seen over the years, and then all of a sudden they're letting these big, you know, super trawlers and that come in. Like, it's got to be just a purely a money thing. Got me stuffed how you know New Zealand. I know they're another country, but you know they're quite, very close to home, and you know a lot of people call them brothers. But you know, to, for them to think of an industry just to let it go so quickly, it's got me stuffed how some of these you know political parties, the way they make decisions, it's got me stuffed. You know how how is that reflected directly to you guys, say on the commercial fishing side of things? Yeah, it, it's all um, it's all political. It's all driven by. That sort of thing, um, and while it's it's more a we don't notice it so much here. It's it's got a lot to do with Commonwealth Commonwealth laws and rules and stuff when when it's concerned it's concerned with fishing. But it's it's uh, they do our closures and that sort of thing now. And I don't you know I, I don't know who does their homework or and that sort of thing on on when they do closures and all that sort of thing. But it appears to be working here in South Australia at least. Um, you know. Fish stocks don't seem to be too bad, and while I've seen, I've seen both sides of the ledger. I'm, I'm in the seafood industry, but I'm also a mad keen angler. Yeah. So I suppose it's the same as, it's the same as uh, animal culling, animal control, call it whatever you want. And, um, you know, it's the same as that. If things need to be regulated, and if they need to stop a fishery to to allow things to breed up, as long as it's done the right way, and the, and the, the science is there, and the, you know the background is looked into, and on a certain species or something, I suppose it's got to be done. But um, as far as those the big the big overseas commercial things coming in, mate, that's uh, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard to sort of take. You know, it's a whole other bloody conversation and super trawls and shit. And I, I just sort of can't get my head around. I'm very similar to you, mate. I've I've actually probably brought up being grown up and and with a fishing rod more in my hands than what I have with with a with a bow. You know, it's. It's probably all I know more than anything is is fishing, and you know I've seen just in my time, 
you know, the changes for obviously New South Wales, but, you know, the changing of, you know, the kingfish traps and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, as much as it's hard, you know, you see livelihood of, you know, professional fishermen, you know, change because of those things that there's no argument that, you know, that improved fisheries. Um, so it's sort of, I sort of really stand on the line. I, I know there's livelihoods involved and, and that's sort of what sort of gets me thrown around, you know, with, with people making decisions that don't have any idea of actually what's going on out in the field. Um, it's, it's really hard for me to get my head around it. And I'm sure it's even harder for someone like yourself that has seen it change so many times over the years. Oh, I think, Craig, a lot of it's just got to do, and it all boils down to you, you hitting the nail right on the head, but as long as it's done by someone who knows what they're doing, you know, it's it's no use um, knee-jerk reactions to things in the, in the seafood game. And it's, it's I, what it really boils down to is we all want to be able to see our kids go out and catch a fish in, our grandkids or our great-grandkids go and catch a fish in 30 or 40 years' time, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as long as, as long as it's done... Um, you know, the, the, it's sensible and it's done, um, you know, in, in a way that, like you said, it's when there's when there's money involved, there's always going to be, you know, tempers flare and, and when areas get closed, the fishing and all that sort of thing. It's the same as when a blokes like you and I that, that love hunting. Um, if you're stopped from doing something, you know, you instantly kick up about it or you don't like it or you've got something to say about it, I suppose... A uh, commercial fisherman's exactly the same, but on the other foot, um, you want your, your, like I said, your grandkids and stuff to be able to go and catch a fish in a river or a, in a bay in 40 or 50 years' time. And you know, I, I think that it, it's a lot, um, it's a lot more regulated now. And thank God, because you know, years ago there wasn't the there wasn't the research done into into fisheries when you look at some of the atrocities that have happened in commercial fishing over the years, but yeah, thank God um, common sense has prevailed and things are probably looking a lot better than what they were years ago. Yeah, I mean, I never want this podcast and I never have a political body, you know, soul in my body, but, you know, it always, it's a topic that comes up. But, you know, I only, I, I guess I mention it, you know, for, for, for a lot of hunters, we're, we're keen fishermen as well and, and vice versa. Um, I think it they, they gel together well. Um, I think it's just the awareness that, you know, it, it is always going to be a little bit difficult and I think we just need to probably appreciate what we've got um, and using, I guess, New Zealand as, a, as, a, as an example, you know, when, when things go wrong, if we can band together, no matter what we hunt with, whether it's a bow, a gun, or, you know, the dogs or whatever it is, and same with fishing, if we band together, we're strong. Um, and, and I think we've just got to be vigilant about that, that we stay that way um, because I think, you know, over the years you've seen it, there's been a lot of separation. Yeah, it's a, you know one person can't do much about things when things are going wrong, and, and, and it's a bit like that the tar cull thing over there. If everybody stayed quiet, mate, they'd lose they'd lose such a, a resource, and mm-hmm. and not you know I heard one bloke talking the other night in a little video on Instagram, and he he said that it wasn't just about him not being able to go hunt on the weekend and hunt tar and sudden outs. It was the fact that his grandfather did it, you know, yeah. over over a hundred years ago, and 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 his father did it, and it wasn't. It was part of their their culture. It was part of their what they did, you yeah. know. And and um, no one's really got the right to take something like that away. Not unless it's not unless it's very heavily, you know. It, it, we all know that animal numbers have to be culled, and 
and and things aren't any good if they get out of control. But you know, when it's something that affects that many people, you know, it's um, yes. But thank God they did it, eh? Yeah. Oh, mate, it, it, it scares me to think of if that had a went gone ahead, how things would change in hunting worldwide, not just not just in New Zealand, and and, and God forbid it didn't happen, and we've got to stay on to that, but. I, I just, you know, when you stop and think about if, if that was let through and that happened, oh, I just, I don't know. I, that would be catastrophic to, to, to hunting worldwide in, in a whole, I reckon. Well, the reaction to Craig was incredible. Like, and, oh. and, you know, you watched the New Zealand Deer Stalkers Association boys and you watched right down to a little kid that I saw some little kid... Um, they were asking for uh, someone was asking for donations for the for the for the cause to fight to fight the coal thing and and some little kid wanted to give his pocket money or, or something his, his five dollars pocket money you know and and it goes to show how deeply rooted hunting is to a lot of those Kiwi the Kiwis so it's yeah. um, it's an incredible thing and it's, it's really got to be admired definitely I mean and look at you know bring it back to Australia. It's always going to be a difficult thing because it's you know it's not in it's not generally in our blood so to speak that that heavily rooted but I think it's starting to become that way we've got generations being born into hunting families and you know hopefully that will help um, for years to come that it is part of part of growing up now you know you're, you're a little bit like me you're sort of brought brought into it at a very young age and you kind of know nothing different I know plenty of people that are like it too and you know you only look at our lifestyle now that especially mine, like everything revolves around it. You know, as much as I've got a, a young family and, you know, my, my job doesn't have anything to do with it, but I'll tell you what, it, it fuels for, you know, it just fuels for hunting. The, you know, every opportunity I've got to talk about it or, you know, think about it, I'm, I'm sort of taking that up. Yeah, I mean, and it's probably getting stronger and stronger, Craig, as we talked about before before you rang me, uh, with the first time you rang me, that, that it's... Um, Years ago, when you were deer hunting circles, years ago were very hush hush, and and you know it probably had something to do with the fact that there wasn't as many animals around and they weren't as widespread. But if you were a deer hunter, you never spoke to anybody about it because you didn't, you know, you didn't want anybody, um, you know, seeing where you went or, or doing what you did. You still talk to your mates about it and that sort of thing. But nowadays, it's uh, with animal numbers a lot more widespread, and the blokes tend to talk about it a lot more. Um, I'm sure that in it'll 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 build that common bond amongst the new generation of hunter, and in years to come, we'll be like the Kiwis, yeah. and and you know we'll fight as a as a as a as a, a collective of blokes all interested in the same thing. There'll be, you know, my uh, my my kids and my grandkids. Hopefully, if they take up the sport, we'll um, we'll band together like those blokes do and, and fight for a bit of the cause because it's I think it's something worth saving. It's funny you mentioned about the hush hush thing. Um... I'm going to give him a free plug here, but you know Josh Rogers. He was a, a very you know the most popular guest that I've had on on the uh, on the podcast, and you know he probably went against the grain, you know, with Samba hunting, and uh, you know, and there's some other guys that I haven't, I don't know personally, but have certainly changed, you know, Samba hunting for forever. I think you know, and sharing some of the, well, they call them secrets, but you know, just some of the knowledge behind Samba hunting, and you know, Josh's, you, know, you only have to look at his his Instagram handle and. You know the following that he's gotten so quickly. You know, with just some of the knowledge, is well, we call them knowledge bombs, but just sharing little tips and tactics that 
it's no wonder it was so hard back in the day to get into deer hunting if you didn't have someone to show you because it was so tight-lipped. Um, and it's not that he's sharing, you know, spots or anything, all that kind of stuff. It's just general information. You know, you can take take what you want out of it. But, you know, I, I just can't imagine how hard it would have been back in those days to try and get into something like, you know, chasing Sambity or something like that. Yeah, um, Craig, I think that had a lot to do with but, but how widespread the deer were. And, I mean, there was, yeah, there was deer point. around, but good point. I still remember... Well, I used to read... I remember as a kid growing up reading the old outdoors magazines and seeing, you know, some of those old gun riders with a, with a, with a deer that wouldn't score very high to be a, you know, just an average fellow stag and thinking, geez, I'd love to do that when I was, you know, when I when I'm when I get a car, when I get a license, and I can go and do it, and I can, you know, from a real early age. Um, but no one ever talked about hunting then. It was there wasn't there wasn't um, I suppose it wasn't the social media thing or the you know, the platforms to do it on. Mm. But um, people just, they, they didn't talk about it. Blokes didn't, if you weren't in a hunting club or something like that, or you weren't involved in a, a family of hunters that did that, um, it just wasn't talked about, I suppose. But, yes, yeah, certainly a lot easier nowadays and and uh, probably getting easier all the time. Yeah, let's hope it goes in that trend and, and, and stays in a positive light. That's, that's all I can hope for. And, you know, with the platforms we've got, We've got two ways to take it. You know, you keep it positive or, you know, we know what happens the other way. So, but, you know, these things happen. Mate, um, you know, talking about New Zealand, you, you've, 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 you've traveled a bit. You've gone to, you know, you've done Africa. You've got some ties over there now. Tell us a little bit sort of about South Africa and, and what you've got going on over there. Well, I haven't actually hunted there, mate. I've, I've, I've always wanted to, um, but I've made a few contacts over there and I've got quite a few mates that have hunted there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was sort of approached by uh, an outfit in, in South Africa, Cruiser Safaris. And while I'm getting, I wouldn't say winding down, but as I, as I get older and probably don't hunt as much, I'd still like to be... I've got an interest and always have had an interest in safari hunting and or any sort of overseas hunting, really, but... Um, yeah, I've always had an, an interest in that. And when it was sort of offered and these people wanted just someone, I sort of plan on going over next year, but um, they wanted someone here just to do, you know, uh, as a booking agent. So I put my hand up because I, I thought, you know, I'd like to do something like that. And it's been sure. really good, actually. It's been been very good because I think they're very much along the same lines. You look at hunting in South Africa, and well, like I said, I haven't actually experienced it Um the blokes I've spoken to from over there, they all seem to be, it's its the same thing. They're all, you know, that, that country runs on, on um, hunting I'm hunts. sure that there's places in South, well, in South Africa, there's places that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the hunting industry over there. Yeah. That's another thing that's got to be admired. Well, it's, it's, a, it's an industry over there that's sort of kept the wildlife going and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good to see. Yeah, I mean, hard. It is hard. You know, that is hard for people to get their heads around when they don't. You know, when it when it's uh, there's so many different versions of that story told. But you know, it's it's crazy to think that you know taking an animal's life is going to save another. You know, it's it's always a weird thing to sort of get your head around. But um, it's true. There's no arguing. It's 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 been there and proven. So, but mate, what? Uh, no, well, you've only got to look at what. Go ahead, mate. You're up. Sorry, mate. Yeah, you've only got to look at what the, the Americans have done with game numbers. And, and I love seeing a success story. You know, when you look at 
what's happened in North America with the white-tailed deer, and we all know, you know, when you you read the books and 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 see that that white-tailed deer and stuff like that was almost decimated in the U.S. and now it's stronger than it ever has been. Yeah. And um, you know, and I suppose that the 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 same with the pronghorn antelope and all that sort of thing. It's um, uh, 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 what you call the conservation story like that's got to be admired. You know what what someone can do if it's if it's if there's a value put on it, or if there's a um, you know they've just looked after their game animals so well, and it's a, it's a bloody credit to them for sure. Well, when you think of the, the that a group, a sporting group or sporting lifestyle, you know, hunting taxes themselves to conservation, that's saying something. Oh yeah, exactly right, and it's it's the same you were mentioning the commercial fishing side of things before. You'll find that a lot of commercial fishermen, while I'm sure things have happened over the years and overfishing and all the rest of it in places, um, uh, most fishermen, a good fisherman, they look after their own industry. So you know, you, if if they're gonna, if there's something to be done, most of the good ones will self-regulate and 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 look after their industry. And I'm sure that's the same in in conservation with, with hunting in the US and and in places like that as well. Mate, I'll ask you this question. If you knew, knew what you knew now at 20 years old, you know what, what would be the advice that you'd take back to your 20-year-old self? Oh, I'd probably get called a sexist pig, mate, but that'd be um, stay single and just hunt my head <laughs> off until I couldn't do it anymore. And that, no, but, but truthfully, um, I'd probably just do things a bit different. I'd, I'd, I'd probably lead things a little bit later in life and, and hunt really hard while I could because now I get, you know, frustration's a horrible thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not old by any bloody shake of a stick, but I'm, you know, 53 years old and been a manual worker all my life and things ache and, and hurt and, and, you know, and, and while I, I'm pretty happy to be to get out of bed every morning, I really wish I'd have done more when I was younger. I wish I'd have... I don't know, just, just explored and maybe travelled overseas more when I was younger, but I was too busy raising a young family and working, you know, so, um, you, and you can't, you can't go hunting without money. You can't, you know, you can't do that sort of thing unless you get a job. So I suppose that's one thing that I would take back. I'd probably just do it a little bit different. I think this is probably going to lead into, uh, that info is going to lead into my next question, but, you know, what's an advice you give to someone that's, re- you know, ripping and tearing into the hunting, you know, mid-20s? Um, what advice you got for them? Probably just do it properly. You know, have a have a little bit of respect for the game. I mean, we talked about it before. If, you, if you've got respect for what you hunt, um, do it properly, um, and and just do it with a bit of. I don't know, I don't know how I'd word it, but um, you know, um, just do it properly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. The way you, the way you handle yourself around other people, let it be seen that, you know, you're not a, a redneck, you're not a, you know, we, we all know that hunting involves killing an animal. Um, but if it's done the right way, it can be seen as, you, you can stand up for yourself. I'm very proud that I'm a hunter. But, um, you know, just, just get, put yourself out there as being a, you're not the, the, the redneck or the murderer that, you know, a lot of them say, yeah, you're just a bloke, yeah. And it, you can still have the respect for the animal. A lot of people lose that sort of thing that you don't respect the game. You, oh, I can wander around now. I don't have to, like a lot of blokes that have done a bit of hunting, I don't have to pull the trigger anymore, Craig. Um, yeah. 
I'm quite happy to wander around with a, a video camera and I get a big kick out of that. So, you know, it's um, just just do things properly. With a, be your mind. Your mind's a big thing. Um, yeah, that's how I describe it anyway, mate. And I think we just do more what we're doing now, mate. It's, you know, just, it's just sharing the stories and make sure they stay alive. That's probably the biggest thing, you know. That's hence why I love talking to you guys. And there's, you know, obviously a bit of a trend with the last few guests, you know, guys that have been there and done it. Um, you're the hard buggers to get the get the stories out of because you're so you're you're also humble. Um, but you know, just just keeping those stories true. And you know, I love hearing the old stuff, and and I just hope you guys keep sharing it and you know and and teaching a way to to you know to to sons, and hopefully they uh you know they carry it forward as well. Ah oh, no, drivers at all, mate. No, it's um, it's been a pleasure. This is a bit different doing this the podcast thing, but like I said earlier that it sort of opens even even a even a bloke that's been around a little bit and, and done a bit of hunting and stuff. It's it opens your eyes up and it's it's really good. It, it sort of makes me very happy to see blokes band together and and the sort of things you blokes do the podcasts and all that sort of thing. I think it's a bloody fantastic thing personally. Yeah, mate, and, and look, I've been, you know, pleasantly surprised by by the growth and the support that I've got and, you know, trying to keep a, a good mix of guests and, and, you know, everyone sort of says, you know, you even said it's not, I'm not a bow hunter. And yes, I, you know, I might be, but, you know, I take out something out of everybody's story, whether you're a rifle hunter, you know, if you're just a hunter or fisherman in general, I'll get something from you. Um, and and that's that's the whole idea of just, it's just hunting camp, you know, there's, there's a story to be told and... And plenty of people want to hear it. So, you know, once again, mate, I, I really appreciate you jumping on. And, and I know it was it was very foreign for you. And we had a little bit of troubles with, with audio tonight, but we nailed it. And um, I can't thank you enough for your time, mate. No worries at all, Craig. No, it's been a pleasure, mate. It's um, it's a bloody great thing. And, yeah, it's uh, – well, well, I don't know whether you, you – you, it's interesting to listen to a whole bloke waffle on about his – not not a very colourful hunting career, but it's um, I'm I'm with you, mate. If it doesn't matter whether you're a, whether you've been hunting five minutes in or or, or fifty years, um, I still reckon if you if you if you think you know it all, you've it's time to give it up. Because I still I've been watching the looking at the social media and all the rest of it, and even the you know blokes that have been hunting. Some of these keen young blokes that are out bow hunting and rifle hunting now, the the things that I've learnt just looking at stuff that a bloke 20 years old's doing now um yeah yeah so if you think you know it all mate i, I think you're wrong <laughs> no, definitely not mate i guarantee that, that's, that, that's the sort of attitude guarantee we'll never we'll never know it know it all there's uh they've got a mind they own they're an animal so um we're never going to know them. that's that's the way i reckon dead right mate I, I, yeah i reckon you're right if you if you uh you, you never stop learning craig that's the way i look at it anyway mate don't worry, but I'll, I'll be trying to come up with some technology that can read animals' minds. Don't get me wrong. But. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No, the high tech thing loses me a bit, mate. But considering I couldn't, uh, I couldn't put a number into a mobile phone a couple of years ago. I get, my kids have all, you know, got me. I can do anything just about on a mobile telephone now. It's pretty bloody clever. <laughs> on that, mate. What's your uh, what's your Instagram handle? Sorry, mate. It's just at Merton Outdoors, mate. Righto, boys. Everyone give him a follow. I'm sure we can get you followers from 1,000 or 1,100, I reckon, with all the people that listen to this podcast. So we'll uh, we'll get you booming, mate. But, nah, thanks again, mate. I really appreciate your time. And uh, mate, I'll let you go to bed, eh? 
No worries, mate. At my age, I need to get to bed. I'm going to start work here. <laughs> Good on you, mate. We'll talk to you soon, eh? No worries, Craig. Thanks, mate. We'll see you later. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was proudly brought to you by Hoyt Bowhunting. I recently had the pleasure of taking a tour of the Hoyt factory in Salt Lake City in Utah. It's no wonder why so many bow hunters around the world put their trust in a Hoyt. Seeing the process, start to finish, under one roof, going through over 50 inspection stations throughout the build process, there is no doubt they are the most reliable and shootable bow on the market. Get serious, get Hoyt. That's all for me this week. Good luck in the hills and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of the Hunting Camp Down Under. Bye for now.